Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17. Uh, We are going to talk about the church at Pergamum, the church that I have called the compromising church. I want to to start with a little little, uh, story, though, before we read the text. In case, you, in case you didn't know this, uh, most, of the, most of the Ivy League schools in this nation, in our country, they began as theological institutions. They, be, they began as, as colleges that if, if they didn't have seminaries, they at least had a strong biblical foundation. It's hard to recognize that anymore. You've got some of those some of those higher learning institutions now coming out and saying that men can get pregnant <laughs> and that there are 50 different genders. That's a, that's a long way to fall. Right? That's a long way to go in a very short amount of time. How did how did that happen? How did, they, how did we get to this place? How did these, these theologically reformed, solid, conservative, biblical institutions get to a place where they have completely neglected God altogether? How did we get here? Well, there was a man, there was a man in the early 1900s that worked for Princeton Theological Seminary. His name was J. Gresham Machen. And he was hired on there to teach New Testament in 1915. And as he was teaching, J. Gresham Machen began to see some very, very concerning issues within the theological school at Princeton. He began to see that some of even the biblical professors were asking the question, did God really say? You see, what, what was happening in these institutions was they were beginning to compromise on what the Bible actually said. And when, and when an institution begins to compromise on what God has said, there is only one place to go from there. And it doesn't have to start. It doesn't have to start with something really, really crazy. Uh, it just has to start with, with one thing. Is, is this really the highest authority for the church? Is this really the highest authority in Christian life? And if you abandon that, I was talking to Cammy this morning. If you abandon that, you're left with nothing. There's nothing left. It's only a downhill slide from there. And we see it. We see that Machen's concerns throughout, this, throughout the 1900s, they were confirmed, right? He went to the board of directors at Princeton, and he shared his concerns, and, he, and they went unheard. They went unheard. And now, 
We look at even Presbyterian, what used to be conservative denominations, have now, now have liberal wings that have gone far out there in terms of their theology. And so, and so now, this, this concern that Machen had, it has played itself out in a way that now we have uh, lesbian pastors being hired. And we have, we have transgender youth leaders that are being hired in denominations. How, how did we get here? How did we get to this place? It is because they compromised. And the compromise started very, very small. But when you compromise one thing, that compromise grows. And it grows. And it grows. And God is gracious. He is gracious to send warnings to churches and denominations. Machen should have been a warning to certain Presbyterian denominations, to certain Presbyterian uh, sects of, of Presbyterianism. But they did not heed his warning. Jesus, today, we're going to see in the church of Pergamum, they're compromising. Jesus recognizes that they are beginning to compromise on what God's word says and, and the way that they live out their Christian faith. So Jesus is warning them. And frankly, this morning, he's warning us too. He's warning us this morning. So I'm going to read our text and we're going to pray this morning. Verse 12 of, of Revelation chapter 2 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. That's good. They're holding fast. And you did not deny the faith. You did not deny my faith. This is good. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And without it, we are lost. We will be off the path. We will be off the narrow path that leads to life. And we will find ourselves on the wide path that many find that leads to destruction. 
So may we this morning hear the warning that you give to your church in Pergamum. May we heed this warning this morning to to never compromise what you have revealed to us to be true and good and right in your word. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. We need your spirit to move among us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jeremy, when he preached in Ephesus, <clears throat> he put up a slide that said, these seven, these seven things, these seven sections here, these are the seven sections that are in these letters. This is going to be our outline today because because when, when Jesus comes to the church at Pergamum, he says he has something to say about all seven of these sections here. He's going to say something about all seven of them. Okay? So this is our outline. So we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to start with who is this letter addressed to? The church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So where is Pergamum? What is Pergamum? Right? It's in Asia Minor, right, with Ephesus and, and, and all of the other seven churches. It's found in Asia Minor, Turkey, as we've mentioned before. Um, Pergamum is about 65 miles north of Smyrna. It's about 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. And, and if you, we should, we should pull that picture up that I put up there? Yeah, there it is. Okay. That's, that's Pergamum. That's what's left. You can see the amphitheater that's coming down right there. Okay? So Pergamum sits upon a hill that's 1,000 feet high. So that's 1,000 feet elevation right there. Okay? So it's a, it's a center of pagan idolatry. There are four temples in Pergamum. There is uh, one to... Athena, where there is an altar of Zeus built on that particular temple. There is a temple of Dionysus there. And there is a temple of Asclepios is the name of the god there. And then there is a temple that was built by Rome that is now meant for emperor worship. This is the Pergamum became the capital city for Roman empirical cult. So this is the epicenter of, of the worship of Caesar, right here, okay? So four temples in this city. This city boasted one of the two biggest libraries at this time in the entire world. The only one bigger is in Alexandria in Egypt. There were over 200,000 scrolls in the library at Pergamum. It was an impressive place. It was a place that prided itself on, on having knowledge, on, on being well-educated. And they prided itself on the worship of many false gods. That's who, that's who Pergamum is. That's who this, this church is. So, so, that's who the church is. So the second, the second point that we want to make here is what, is this, what does Jesus say about himself? In every one of the letters that he writes in Revelation, he, he gives a description of himself. 
So in ver- at the end of verse 12, he describes himself. He is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. This goes back to chapter 1 and verse 16, where Jesus has said that, when he, that he is described as having a sword coming out of his mouth. So what is this? What is this picture of a sword? What, what does this teach us about who Jesus is? What does it teach us about his character? Well, we know he is, he is the king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know that from later on in Revelation, in chapter 19, there are two, two places where when Jesus returns, he comes and he crushes his enemies with a sword. He comes in judgment. So, Asclepios, the god who has a temple in Pergamum, actually, the, the proconsul. So, so the, Roman, the Roman Empire set up a, an administrative center in the middle of Pergamum where governors and proconsuls for the Roman, uh, for the Roman uh, empirical cult would be. And, and they were said, this proconsul was said to have a sword. He, he the proconsul, had uh, the, the right to judge life and death. And, and the fact that Jesus has a sword right here describes himself with a sword. He's actually saying that, no, that Roman proconsul does not have the right to judge perfectly. I do because I am the perfect judge. Jesus is the only one who is perfectly righteous. He is the only one who is worthy to bring judgment upon anyone. The, the Roman proconsul has no power, real power. Jesus is the one who has the real power. And we know that because of in verse 16. In verse 16, Jesus warns the church that if they don't repent, he's going to come immediately with a sword in judgment of those who are following the teachings of Balaam and following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He's going to come in judgment on those people. Right. So that's who the, it, the letter is addressed to. That's the description of Jesus What does Jesus commend this church for? What does he commend the church for? Look in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus goes from all, all the other letters, seven letters except for one, Jesus says to the church, I know your works. Here he doesn't talk about their works. He, he comes to them and he says, I know where you dwell. Why, why would he change that? Why would he change and say, I know where you dwell? Because they need to know that Jesus is with them. That's why. He understands what's happening in this culture that is full of pagan idolatry. He understands what's going on there, and they need encouragement. They need to know that Jesus knows their circumstances. And what is their circumstances? Where do they live? Well, they live where Satan's throne is. They live where Satan dwells. Man, that's, that's big, that's Talking about Satan living in a place, that's, that's, 
That's tough for this, that's tough for this church when they're living in the same place that Satan has come and set up his shop. What does it mean? What does that mean where Satan's throne is? Well, if you, if you saw the picture, if you saw the picture of Pergamum, when, when people would come, when people would be approaching the city and they would look up that thousand foot hill, it almost looks like it could be a throne at the top of a hill. So some people, some commentators would say, well, that's, it's just because when people approached the city, it looked like a throne. Some people, some people say that it's, it's the, the massive temple to Athena where the altar of Zeus is made. That, that's, the, that's, where, that's referred to as Satan's throne. Some, some commentators would say that it's the temple of Asclepius because the temple of Asclepius, the, the, the symbol of the temple of Asclepius was a coiled serpent. And we, also, we all know that in the Old Testament, the serpent is the devil, right? So some people say that it's the temple of Asclepius. By the way, Asclepius is the god of healing. And if you look at a, a symbol on a, on a hospital, the medical symbol, you'll recognize that there's a coiled serpent. That's where this comes from. It comes from the god Asclepius, the god of healing. And, and though those things are really good ideas, I think the most, likely, the most likely thing that is being referenced to Satan's throne is probably the fact that this is the capital city for emperor worship. And, and the reason why I believe this is because if, you, if we read in verse 13, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, Somebody died for their faith. Somebody in this church gave their life for faith in Jesus Christ. And they probably didn't give their life for Jesus Christ because they didn't worship, worship at the temple of Athena. They probably didn't give their life because they didn't worship at the temple of Asclepius. But if you refuse to worship the emperor, if you refuse to give your pinch of incense to the emperor... You could lose your life for that. So we don't know. We don't know who Antipas is. We have, we have no idea. This is the only place in Scripture that he is mentioned. So we don't, we don't know who he is. He, he could have been some higher level, level government official that refused to say Caesar is Lord. He refused to give his pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord. And he, would, he was holding fast to the creed of Jesus is Lord. He might have even been an athlete. High-level athletes at that time, in order to compete at the highest level, you would have to give your pinch of incense to Caesar, and you would have to say Caesar is Lord. So he, he could have been an athlete that just refused to bow the knee. Or he could have gone down to the temple when some shenanigans were taking place at a some type of... Uh, workers guild festival where a lot of temple prostitution and things like that were taking place he could have gone down there and been preaching the gospel and the crowd just got all mobbed up and worked up and they just decided boom we're just going to kill you right here could be any of those we don't know 
But the beautiful thing that we do know is this man is forever in God's word. This man's name is in the scriptures, and God made sure his name was there. And by the way, Jesus calls him a faithful witness. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 5, faithful witness is the phrase that is used to describe Jesus himself. What an, what an amazing thing that is to have your name in Scripture because you refuse to bow the knee to anyone but Jesus and you gave your life for it. I would like to think I would do that, but the truth of the matter is, I don't know. You don't know. None of us know until we're in that situation. If we're, no way, man. Because we know there are some in the congregation that have decided that it is worth it to give the pinch of incense. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So, so what is he commending this church for? He's commending them for keeping the name of Jesus and not saying Caesar is Lord and saying Jesus is Lord. He commends them for remaining faithful, right? Even in the midst of seeing one of their brothers in Christ killed because he loves Jesus, even watching one of their brothers be killed for Jesus, they still did not deny faith in Christ. They still did not deny his name. They held to Jesus is Lord. I can't, I can't imagine what it would look like, what it would be like to see one of my brothers in Christ killed right in front of me because he refused to bow the knee to Caesar. But they remained faithful. They remained faithful and they, they kept the name of Jesus. So they, that's what he commends them for, right? So we're so far so good, right? It's only good news up to this point. This is really good. I'm having a great time. This is really good news. Now he rebukes them. <laughs> We're going to read verses 14 and 15 together. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. We're going we're to get into that. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so just know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna rehash the, who the Nicolaitans are. Jeremy brought that up in Ephesus, okay? Uh, but we, we do know that because they're brought up with the teachings of Balaam here, we know that whatever, whoever the Nicolaitans are, they're down with idolatry and they're down with sexual immorality. They, they, they're down with both of those. Okay, and they're trying to get people in the church to come out, to come and be a part of that. Okay, We're, that's all we'll say about them for right now. I want to talk about Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. Now, this teaching is not necessarily like a theological teaching. So, Balaam's not going around denying the Trinity, Balaam's not going around denying the deity of Christ. Okay, Balaam is actually a typology from the Old Testament that, that points to the New Testament as being someone who draws God's people away from God. He's a type. He's a picture. 
He's, we, we, we read about him in Jude. Uh, he's, in, he's, he's mentioned in 2 Peter, okay? And, and he, those, Balaam pulled the sons of Israel, as we see, away from God into sexual immorality and idolatry. So here's what I want to do. I want to summarize Numbers 22 through 24 real quick and the story of Balaam, okay? Balaam is a prophet of Israel. And Balak, who is mentioned right here as well, he is the king of Moab. And he is about to have a battle with Israel. And Balak, the king of Moab, looks out and he sees that Israel are numerous and he is not going to win this battle. So what he does is he wants to find a prophet of Israel to come and curse the people of Israel so that he can win the battle. He identifies Balaam as his guy. So he sends his guys to Balaam. And he's like, man, we got all this money. We're offering you all this money if you'll just come to Moab and you'll curse the Israelites. Balaam, he confers with God. God's like, nah, you can't go. Sorry. And so the guys go back. They report to Balak. Balak says, offer him more money. So they come back and they offer, they offer Balaam more money. And Balaam's like, oh, God... I really want to go. Um, so can, can, can I go? And God is like, okay, you can go. But what you say can only be the words that I give you. You can't say anything but except for the words that I give you. So Balaam hops on his donkey. Those of you who know the story, angel of the Lord shows up three times, causes the donkey to stop. Hit Balaam. Balaam strikes the donkey three times. And the donkey goes, hey, man, why you keep hitting me like that, man? I've, I've been faithful to you all these years. Why you keep hitting me? And then God opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel of the Lord. And Balaam's like, oh, there's an angel of the Lord in the way that we can't go around. Sorry, right? So he gets to where Balak is. He gets to Moab. And Balak's plan, it just, he's like, he takes him to four different places, right? Every time, every time, all four oracles that Balaam gives are not curses of Israel. He blesses them every time instead. So, so Balak is like, oh, you, you just blessed Israel? Well, let me take you over here. Let's try it over here. Ask God if you got another word for you. Maybe he'll bless, maybe he'll curse them over here. Nope. Four blessings. Blesses Israel, right? But Balaam was doing a little end around while he was doing that. On the side, yes, he was blessing Israel, but he was also working with Balak to teach. He says it right here in our text. He taught Balak to send the Moab, Moabite women to seduce the Israel men. And we all know how that will go. It went like we thought we would get, like it would go. They went and seduced the men, and men were like, yeah. <laughs> They're like, man, they liked it so much, they just started sacrificing to their idols too. Did I give you numbers 25, 1 and 2? While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Balaam convinced Balak to get the Moabite women to, it says it right here in our text, right? To have sexual immorality and to sacrifice to other gods. He drew them into idolatry. He drew them away from the one true and living God to false gods. That's Balaam. That's the typology that we're looking at here that's in Jude and that's in 2 Peter. That's what we're talking about, okay? And we know that it was him. We don't, have to, we don't have to look at it, but if you go to chapter 31, verse 16, Balaam clearly gets blamed for drawing them away. So we know that it was him, all right? So, so how does this apply to Pergamum? Well, because the people who are holding to this teaching are simultaneously telling the people of Israel that they can worship their own God, but they're also at the same time telling them, hey, you have to come over here and give your pinch of incense to Caesar too. You have to come over. If you want, it's just a little pinch. Just a little pinch. It's not much. It's just one little pinch of incense. Just three little words. Caesar is Lord. One little pinch, three little words. It's not that big of a deal. You can still, you can still love Jesus, right? Because they've already said that they, they, they've already loved Jesus, right? They've kept their name. They've kept, they've kept his name. They've kept their faith, right? Just come over here and give that little pinch. It's not that big of a deal. Just come over here. Just come over here to our Workers Guild Festival at the Temple of Athena and just participate in the festivities. It's not that big of a deal. Hey, guess what? If you do that, you'll get to keep your job. You won't lose your job. It's so simple, right? It's so simple. <laughs> just, one, just one little pinch. Just, just come and be a part of our party at the, at the temple. No problem. It's not that big of a deal. You'll get to keep supporting your family. I mean, think about the temptation there. These are probably, not all of the Christians in this church are like, have been Christians for a very long time. This is still the first century, right? Some of these Christians are probably like weeks old as Christians, right? They've been in this idolatrous lifestyle their whole life. They've been pinching and saying Caesar is Lord for the last 20 years of their life. Why, why, would, it, why would it be so difficult to just go back and give another little pinch again? My life is on the line here. My well-being is on the line here. My family, I can't provide for my family. How tempting would that be for them to go back to that? Just really simple, Caesar is Lord, little pinch. This applies to us too, right? Come on, Christian. Why do you have to be so radical? Why do you have to be so radical in your beliefs? You can, you can love Jesus and give a little pinch of incense to egalitarianism. You can, come on. You don't need to be so radical about, hey, you can give a little pinch to the LGBTQ. Just give a little pinch and just say it's good. And then you can go back to being comfortable in your church and you don't have to mess with it anymore. Just give a little pinch to my body, my choice. Just a little pinch. 
Remember what happened to the Ivy League schools when they just gave a little pinch. Remember what happened to those liberal denominations when they gave just a little pinch. It never stops with just one pinch of incense. It never stops. The things, just a little pinch to some woke ideologies. Just a little pinch. Just like Pergamum had their idols, just like Pergamum had their paganry, we have ours in this culture too. Everything I just mentioned is pagan idolatry. This is, that's paganry. Everything I just talked about is paganism at its core. These are the idols of our culture. We can never allow those idols into God's place. We can never allow those. We can never give a pinch, not one pinch, not one Caesar is Lord to these idols. Never. This is, this, those are, that's what world, that's, that's progressive. That, that's what, that's, this, is, this is what our culture believes progression looks like. That's worldly thinking. That's worldly wisdom. You know what Paul said to the Corinthians about worldly wisdom? I don't need it. I preached Christ and him crucified, and that's it. That's all we need. We don't need pinches of any incense. We don't need to bring that worldly wisdom into the church. We don't need to bring those cultural idols into here. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came as a human and lived a perfect life that we couldn't. He died a sacrificial death for our place, for our sins. He rose conquering sin and death. We don't, there is no pinching of incense. We don't need those things in the church. This is the reason why Paul is rebuking them. It's because they've already begun that compromise. They've already begun to compromise. Paul is being gracious to this church right now. Here's the, here's the beautiful thing. This letter, this whole entire letter, the whole book of Revelation, it wasn't just meant for the church of Smyrna. It wasn't just meant for the church at Pergamum. This whole letter was circulated around all of Asia Minor. So even though Smyrna and Philadelphia, God had, Jesus had no, nothing to rebuke them for, guess what they got? They got warnings about what the other churches were doing and not to, what they shouldn't do, right? They got to read about what's happening in Sardis. They got to read about what's happening in Thyatira. This is a, this is a, a letter that informs the entire church of Jesus Christ what it should look like and where we fall short. This is He's being gracious to these churches by sharing, by telling them where they're going wrong. Because the time, time is of the essence, right? What is the solution? If, if that's the rebuke, 
You've allowed Balaam's teaching into your church. What is the solution? It's simple. One word. Verse 16. Repent. Repent. It's not, it's not hard. It's, it's not... It is hard. It's not complicated. Repentance is hard. But it's not complicated. He doesn't, he doesn't spend... Any, he doesn't spend time unpacking all of this. He just tells them simply. And Brent talks about it all the time. When he's counseling some, somebody, he, he makes fun of himself all the time. He's like, hey, just stop doing that. That's simple. Hey, man, you keep doing Just stop doing it. Just cut it out. These people have to be put out of the church. They have to be put out of the church. They can't remain. Because if they remain in the church, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. More people are going to get brought in to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. More people. More people are going to start going and giving their pinches of, of incense. Why? Because they're seeing other people benefit from it. Because there is a benefit to giving the pinch of incense. There is a benefit to saying Caesar is Lord. It's We'll let you over here and kind of leave you alone as, as long as you just do that. So that's enticing to everybody. So it's going to build. It's going to build. It's going to build. Repent. Church, this morning, I ask you individually, corporately, where have you compromised? Where have we Compromised because we all have compromised. If, if we hadn't compromised, we wouldn't need Jesus. We've all compromised somewhere. Whether it's what you say about somebody else behind their back, whether it's what you look at, whether it's what you think about other people, we've all compromised. We've all given the pinch of incense. What does Jesus say the consequence will be if they don't repent? End of verse 16. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that sword again. Jesus cares for his bride very much. I want to read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. It should be up there. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus expects a pure bride when he comes back to have her. He will not allow for his bride to be hijacked. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus spilled his very own blood to purchase his bride. He is purifying her every day through the work of the Holy Spirit. And because of the love that he has for his bride, the eternal redemptive love that he has for his bride, he will bring righteous judgment on all those who lead his bride into adultery. He will not allow his bride to be, to play as we read it in 25, Numbers 25.1. He will not allow his bride to play the whore. He will come in judgment on those who lead his bride into whoredom. Repent or Jesus is going to come. Notice, notice, the, notice the pronouns, right? I know pronouns are everybody's favorite thing. Right? Notice the pronouns in verse 16. He says, if you don't repent, I will come to you. But then he changes. I will war against them. So he's not, he's not coming with a sword for the entire church. He's coming with a sword for those who are leading his bride into whoredom. That's who he's coming for. He is coming in judgment for those people, for those who teach the Nicolaitans, for those who teach the teaching of Balaam, for those who are leading his bride into idolatry and sexual immorality. He will come for them because his blood is what purchased them. Solution and consequence, <clears throat> promise. Jesus gives a promise. Let's read verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, I ask you and myself this morning, have we heard what the Spirit has said? Did we hear what the Spirit said to Ephesus? Hey, man, congratulations. You have good theology, and you found out who's a false teacher. But guess what? You've lost your love for Jesus. Good theology can never replace your love for Jesus. Good theology should lead you to a deeper love of Jesus. Church, do we hear the warning that he gave to Smyrna? Guess what? You can be faithful, you can love Jesus, and you can die for it. But be faithful unto death. Christianity following Christ is going to cost you something. And it should. And it will. It's going to cost you something. You have to take, we have to take up our cross daily. It's going to cost something to follow Jesus. Possibly even our lives. Church, have you heard what the Spirit said this morning? that we must never compromise with the cultural idols that are surrounding us 
and pressing in on us. Listen, just because we don't let the cultural idols in the church doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility in the culture at all. Make that, let's make that clear. We do have a responsibility. We have the gospel. Jesus is the only hope for a dying culture and a crooked and twisted generation. We have the gospel. We have a responsibility in the culture to take the gospel into the culture. It's the only hope. But we can't let the culture's idols come in here. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. He says this phrase in all seven letters. Jesus does. He says this promise to the one who conquers. The funny thing is, none of us can conquer. Not one of us. None of us has the ability to conquer anything in this life. So what is he saying? If he's telling people to conquer, if he's telling churches to conquer, what's he saying? We put John, 1 John 5, 4 up there. Did I give you that one? Oh, sweet. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We don't, over, we don't overcome. We don't overcome to the end. We don't make it to the end by just white-knuckling it and hanging on as best we can. We make it to the end and we conquer because we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's how we conquer. Maybe you're in this place this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus. I beg you this morning, come to him. You cannot conquer apart from Jesus. Come to him. He lived a perfect life. You, you can't, that I can't. He died in your place for your sins and my sins. He didn't stay dead. We know he didn't stay dead because he's coming and visiting these churches. Come to Jesus. It is the only way we can conquer. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, he gives a threefold promise. I'm going to do my best here. Hidden manna. Take a stab at what that is. Uh, white stone and a new name. Lord, help us. So, let me give you a couple of things that I thought were pretty interesting, but they're not really what I believe this is talking about. Let's start with the hidden manna. Some commentators believe that Jesus is referring to a Jewish legend that the prophet Jeremiah, when Solomon's temple was being destroyed, the prophet Jeremiah went into the temple, took the manna out of the Ark of the Covenant, and hid it and buried it until the Messiah returns. I mean, that's a pretty cool stuff. That's, like that's like some Raiders of the Lost Ark or something stuff right there, right? I mean, that's a, that's a, pretty, I mean, that's a pretty cool story. I mean, I don't think that that's what it's talking about, but I mean, it's pretty cool, right? Some think that this hidden manna is just simply God's provision. It's a picture of God's provision from now until Christ returns. That's pretty good too, right? Because God is going to provide for us until Christ returns, right? That's, pr that's pretty good. I don't think that's right either. 
But for those, for those of you that know me, you're going to be shocked by my next statement. I've decided to go against the grain here. That's funny because I always go against the grain. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm in a very small minority in believing what this hidden manna is talking about. But hopefully as I paint the picture of what the rock and the name are also talking about, hopefully that'll bring some... <clears throat> Will you put uh, Re- Revelation uh, verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9 up there, please? I'm going to read it from my Bible. So here's my question. In John chapter 6, Jesus told us that he is the true manna that came down from heaven. That he is the true bread from heaven that the Father sent. Jesus, the manna that was in the wilderness was pointing forward to Jesus who would be the true bread. So my question, I started thinking, I'm reading all these commentators, I started thinking, well, what seems contextually right? Where would we most fully and perfectly enjoy Jesus as the fulfillment of the hidden manna, of the manna in the wilderness? Where would we fully enjoy him most? And this is what I came up with. And there was, there was a couple other people that agreed with me. <laughs> then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're an underliner, underline invite right there. You see, I believe this hidden manna is a future event in the eschaton where all of God's children will come into this, the bride will go and be with her groom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will partake most perfectly and beautifully of the manna that came down from heaven. So then what is the white stone? Okay, so you kind of went off, you know, went off on your own there a little bit on this one. So what is the white stone? Okay, twofold, okay? So a white stone in ancient times, if, if uh, if you were getting invited there's our word, invited to a big feast or a wedding or a party of some sort. Your, if you were invited, you would be given a white stone. And, though, and so when you show up at this event and you knock on the door and the host comes to see you and you would present your white stone, that would show that you had been invited and that you were welcome into that, that festivities, those festivities. Everybody see kind of where I'm going here? I hope so. Second thing. Second thing. I think a white stone in the ancient days was also used 
in a court setting. So if someone was on trial and they were found guilty by a jury, they would be handed a black stone. But if someone were tried and they were acquitted, they were found not guilty, they would be handed a white stone. I hope everybody sees the picture. Right? When, we sh- when you show up, when the one who conquers shows up to the marriage feast of the Lamb, and you knock on the door, and the host comes, and you present your white stone, showing that not only are you invited, but you were found not guilty of your sin. So then, what is this new name? Oh. Oh, no. It even says it in the text. If we go back to the text, it even says, no one will know the name except for the one who receives it. Well, none of us have gotten a white stone yet, so we don't know what the name is on it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I mean, I am trying to read things into things here, right? We can't just make stuff up where it's... We, we, what we do know for sure, though, is that whatever name is written on that stone is a name that identifies you with the Savior. Whatever name is written on that stone is a name that, is, that, will, that lets that host, who's about to let you into the feast, it lets that host know this is one of the lambs. It identifies you with the, the lamb, and then you can go in and you can sup with the lamb at the marriage feast. This morning, I ask, have you trusted in Christ to conquer? He has conquered. He has overcome the world. He is the one who conquers. Have you put your trust in Jesus? So that when that day comes, you can walk up to that feast and you can present your white stone, most likely with the name of Jesus himself on that stone. Trust in Christ this morning. Let's pray. God, may may we in this place this morning, may we heed your rebukes. May we heed your warnings but may we also rest in the truth of the finished work of Christ and that in him one day we will overcome, we will conquer, and we will be invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb to be in joyous union with him for all eternity. Praise God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.